This is Paul Nobles from the Eat Reform Podcast, and I have a special guest today. The We've been doing these series. We used to do these a lot more, and then we sort of kind of came in-house, um, partially because it, it gets to be hard to find great guests, and you're constantly seeking out people. But I've had a lot of energy to do that recently. And so today's guest is going to be Eric Trexler, and Eric is the co-host or are you the leader over there or is greg the leader so i'm the host uh greg is a temporary guest host okay that i am uh you're completely you're, able to dispose of at any time if i want him gone he's gone i got you okay and i've made that very clear to him yeah that makes total sense to me yeah um so stronger by science podcast in case you haven't you haven't uh, figured it out there's a lot of fun going on over there and, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Eric, but uh, you guys were the very first fitness podcast ever. We were, yeah. The the fitness industry existed before we started, and there were, I think, six or seven podcasts that existed. Um, but the two had never been really merged into the same idea. So we, we started that. And then in the months since we started, there have been quite a few that have kind of popped up, which is great. We You know, we invite that. Yeah, that's. <laughs> I mean, you you took that one well. Either it wasn't funny, like I said. I told him, I said, I've got some jokes for you. I'm saving them up. It's either going to be funny or not funny. You handled that one well. Yeah, so um, we will never concede that any fitness podcast preceded us. So it's just not going to happen. Yeah, I mean, you could always get nailed down to the to the niche part, right? Um, and uh, you know. I think when you have science on your side, you know, that it's very easy to kind of kind of be number one there. So, OK, so we're going to quit messing around and start to get into some topics. And uh, I'm going to start off with kind of a light topic because Eric and I were talking a little bit before the podcast. And uh, he's currently drinking an energy drink, which in some areas of the world is Eric is about to die within yeah. minutes of ingesting this monster energy drink. Um, and what I was sort of explaining to him, and we've kind of gone over this in the podcast in recent weeks, so I don't want to kind of distract things. But in general, what I've tried to do is kind of look inward at some things that might be causing me anxiety. And one of the things that I hadn't really considered was my reliance on um, energy drinks and high intensity music to fuel my workouts, which to be honest with you, aren't all that gangster a lot of the time, right? Like, like, you know, you throw on the can't kill me t-shirt and you're listening to some five finger death punch and, and then you're doing 15 pound curls. It's like, <laughs> doesn't really, you know, match up. But I thought that it would be interesting to talk about because one of the things I heard Dave Tate talk about a little bit from Elite FTS. Um, he said this was a long time ago. And they asked him what would be the one thing that he would change as it relates to, you know, his lifting career. And that's what he said. He said that that he wouldn't get amped up the way that he did. And so I'm really interested in your perspective. And then if you want to throw in some some science, go right ahead. Absolutely. So there's 
there's two topics here. There's the getting amped up while lifting, and then there's the caffeine, which I, I view as kind of separate. Now, I uh, kind of arrived at a similar point that you have, it sounds like, where I was I was doing a really rigorous powerlifting program uh, a few years ago, and I'd been doing some reading. I forget where I got the idea, which is a shame because I'd like to give credit when I can, but I feel like it might have been an article by Matthew Perryman, who I don't think he does a lot of fitness stuff anymore. I think that's who it's from, but I, I might be wrong. But in any case, it was an article about the idea of just trying to chill a little bit when you're lifting, even though you're still performing, you know, things that you could justify getting amped up for. It was almost like a challenge of try to see how calm you can remain throughout this workout. Can you do these top sets of lifting that you would be inclined to get very amped up for because they're challenging? Can you try to maintain your performance without the psychological, uh, essentially arousal in, involved with getting amped up for that? And what I found was, you know, doing a really rigorous powerlifting program after the workouts, you feel like you got hit by a bus, right? But what I found was that a lot of that was just kind of the emotional drain of like, I just got amped up for like 90 minutes straight and had really heavy weight on my back. And in my mind was running through, you know, just this in, insane amount of arousal in order to get through the workout. And uh, what I found was that there was a lot of value in trying to reserve that uh, that process of getting amped up and really emotionally engaged with the workout, just kind of save it until you absolutely need it. And what I found was that the workouts were less taxing. Uh, I felt significantly more recovered from a subjective perspective. And so it got to the point where when I was lifting, um, I was listening to talk radio. I was listening to Iron and Wine or Dave Rawlings and Gillian Welch. Like, really, really chill stuff. And I liked it a lot. And, and so like for me, it kind of depends. Sometimes you go into a workout and part of it is just the high energy fun of whatever workout you're doing. It's engaging, you're enjoying it. And when that's the case, if I'm feeling it, like whatever, put on some high energy music, have fun, enjoy it. I won't like restrain myself and say, no, you have to be a robot. This isn't for fun remove all the excitement and the energy from this workout. But um, there is value in really being selective about when you choose to get that uh, kind of cranked up and emotionally attached to the workout. So it's interesting what you're talking about because I think that um, there, there's kind of two things going on, right? And and we can talk about caffeine because I think we're, we may be thinking similar with caffeine, but maybe not. Um, I think what ends up happening a lot of times if you feel like you need to take seven shots just to work out or listen to the hardest core gangster rap, that you might be better off having a little sleep, right, or or making rest a bigger priority. And I know I've been guilty of that. You know, when when, you know – for your audience, you're dealing with a lot of bodybuilders and a lot of people that are really into the science and things of this nature. A lot of people that listen to this podcast are new to some of these concepts 
and they're they're like drinking them up like water right it's it's like so amazing to hear logical stuff because there's so much noise out there that what we hear often is that things are confusing and overwhelming but i remember you know i mean we didn't really talk about my story but i lost 100 pounds and a lot of it was eating high calories. So obviously I was working at a deficit um, by working out a lot. And oftentimes I was not always sleeping great. You know, I, I, I would go in, uh, I, I, <laughs> I now listen to HRV. I didn't at that time, that was probably smart. I would have never worked out, you know. Um, but it would have been interesting to see what my journey would have been like. I'll never know you know, what I was really going through at that time and then how much easier it could have been. Like people often ask me, what would be the one thing that you would change? I was like, definitely the biggest thing I would change is I would go slower, right? Yeah. Because I blew through a lot of muscle and, and things of that nature. And so I think that rest is something that obviously probably comes up a lot on your podcast, but but that would be, if you're if you always have to get amped up, you know, are you sleeping? What I love is, so so it's kind of funny because I, I have like this work share environment. That's my office, right? And there's other blogs in there and other startups in there. And what's funny is, is meditation is such a big deal in this community. Um, and all of them sleep five hours a night, right? And it's like, I don't get why you guys are so into meditation when none of you sleep, you know, I mean, and so maybe you try to sleep a little bit better, but it's, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing. So let's move on to caffeine. Cause I think that, or did you want to comment on that? Because I, I did have one comment, Paul, I like the way that you view that. Um, so not, it's a different perspective, but the question that you kind of implied there is, why do you feel the need to get so amped up? And I think that's a valuable way to look at it because when I when I'm being honest and objective with myself, the workouts when I really need to get amped up, there's a few things going on. One might be I'm underslept. One might be I don't enjoy my training. And it's not that I'm actually physiologically tired. It's that I'm just not excited about what I'm about to do. And the third common thing would be my programmed workout is a little bit more than I can handle right now in terms of the loads and the repetitions I'm required to do. So I, I really like that perspective of considering not just the pros and cons of getting amped up, but take it a step back and say, why, why are you currently feeling the need to get amped up? I think that's really valuable. But yeah, we can move on to caffeine. So when you're talking to Greg, does he ever say something to you like your voice melts me like butter? No, he should. I, I, I mean, I'm just impressed with your voice. Um, <laughs> I've but, never heard that. I wonder, thank I, you. Yeah, I really think that Greg uh, should give you a little bit more credit there. And that's that's obviously why you're the, the head dog over there. That's right? why I keep him in a very replaceable spot. Yeah. So the other thing that I think we should talk about, because you know, depending on what study you see, caffeine can benefit you up to 20%. And so a lot of the times I would imagine that the way that you structure it, similar to the way that I structure it, to where 
I'll drink my caffeine and usually within an hour or so I'm working out, right? And a lot of times, uh, you know, for me, I have a little bit of kind of an insulin sensitivity issue. So if I work out fasted a little too late or even sometimes early, I'll get kind of a hypoglycemic thing going on. And and the caffeine, of course, does not help in that situation. So often I will add a little something like a little yogurt, granola, honey, just to have something in my stomach and my body handles it a little bit better. I, I think I always like to mention that because I think that there's so much information out there where people are like, no, dude, totally train fast. It's like the best. It's like, well, okay, we're all individuals and we all respond a little bit differently to something. And so, um, so I always like to bring that up, but Talk to me a little bit about caffeine, because if caffeine is a known performance enhancer, right? So maybe go into that a little bit. Yeah, so caffeine is interesting because it's it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. People, whether they like fitness or not, they consume caffeine generally. Um, And the first studies looking at the effects of caffeine on physical performance actually go back into the 1800s, a very, very basic kind of writing down observations and putting it in an early journal. In the 70s, they started looking at it a lot when it comes to endurance performance. And then in the last couple of decades, they've really expanded the caffeine and performance literature. So now we know, uh, you know, it helps very reliably with endurance performance. Its effects on strength and power are not quite as large or reliable, but they're still meaningful. Um, So, yeah, if you consume caffeine, usually the dose that we consider ergogenic is somewhere between three and six milligrams per kilogram of body mass. So you find out your weight in kilograms and multiply. And it's usually a lot more than people think. You know, people think if I have a cup of coffee, I've had a caffeine dose. In the research literature, it's, it's more like three or four cups of coffee would be equivalent to what we study. Um, But there's an important thing of that literature that your listeners will want to know. And that is while these doses do seem to benefit a wide variety of types of exercise, uh, responses are quite individualized and we are starting to understand why that is. some of it has to do with your subjective response to just whether or not whether or not you like that feeling of being on a stimulant. Uh, but from a more academic perspective, we're seeing that there are very big differences in how your body metabolizes caffeine. And we've actually identified a very key gene that can easily be tested and tell you how quickly or slowly you're likely to metabolize caffeine. And for now, it seems like that has a pretty big impact on uh, not just your performance responses, but also your health related responses to caffeine use. So it's interesting that you say that about the powerlifting because, you know, when so my fitness journey sort of it's interesting because I, I literally just came back from from CrossFit and two years before I started CrossFit. Um, was really where the majority of the heavy lifting happened or the exact opposite, right? Like I never lifted any weights. It was really largely endurance-based. There were elements of strength training 
it would probably be akin to going to Orange Theory like three times a day, right? That was sort of everything was about calorie burn. And once I got, you know, I got to a place, this was, I'm trying to think of the time frame, um, but it would have been before I started CrossFit, but I got to a place where I was like 21% body fat and just could not go lower. And, and I was being kind of a baby about lifting weights because, you know, I was like, I'm going to get hurt. You know, there was all these things going on. So what, of course, did I do? <laughs> I go to CrossFit um, rather, than, rather than learn them in, in, in the way that was different, which is a long way to get to the point of what I was going to really talk about was when I moved from CrossFit to powerlifting. And when I went from CrossFit to powerlifting, holy cow. There was some caffeine use there, you know, um, and we were loading up Vibrins and, and, and just massive amounts of caffeine. And I wasn't being really smart about it. I mean, I was definitely a lot smarter about the science of things at this point, but I really could not, you know, the workout sessions were 6 PM to 10 PM. If you wanted to work out with like these other gangsters, that's what you were going to have to do. And you were going to have to ingest caffeine, you know, as a way to kind of get that little extra enhancement. And then, of course, you're staying up till three o'clock in the morning because not yeah. only are you jacked up on the five finger death punch, not only are you jacked up on the fact that you're like, you know, just destroying your CNS every single day. What was interesting about the powerlifting experience kind of as a side note was that I thought it would wreck me even more, right? Like, cause I, you know, I always had like a little thing at CrossFit. I was very lucky. You know, one of my, my friends from powerlifting said that um, one of the biggest benefits that I had coming in as a non-trained athlete is that I didn't have knee injuries and hip injuries and pulled a quad and pulled a bicep. So I, I came into it, and luckily I did not get hurt. So when I moved to powerlifting, it actually really changed my view of exercise in general. And because I was doing many of these movements that were isolated or, you know, there were compound movements, but, but you know, it wasn't for size. There, there wasn't all these different things that my body just started to heal. And so – now, when I CrossFit, very different. I mean, I, I modify so freely. The other thing that I think is going to be interesting to you was that I was very interested in building muscle. And so, you know, of course, I'm like, you know, taking my deadlift to 500, I'm going to build muscle. That did not happen. Um, I lost muscle. And... Um, I would like your opinion on that, right? And I think that in this discussion um, can be one of the things. But I think it's an easy answer, and I will guide it if you don't get it exactly the way that I'm thinking about it. But I was kind of thinking about it all wrong. And so can you can you kind of talk to that burrito that I just served up to you? <laughs> so... Let's see. There is the injury part, and then there is the increased deadlift without muscle gain. Which part would you like me to to respond to first? Caffeine part. So let's start with the caffeine part. The ca- and then- oh, yeah, because 
let's talk about about maximum strength versus maximum muscle. Okay. Yeah. So with the caffeine part you mentioned, it was kind of part of what everybody was doing. And Greg and I were talking about that on the on our podcast a few weeks ago. Um, because we live in this like powerlifting bodybuilding circle and it's where most of our professional relationships are our friendships everything we kind of forgot that not everybody lives their life around caffeine but in powerlifting it seems to be the case we were just in london last week for the european powerlifting conference and i was kind of standing up by the on the side by the balcony looking into the crowd of, of people and every single person, it seemed, had a caffeinated beverage. Um, so, yeah, that's part of the powerlifting culture. Um, and you're right. You have to be really careful about, um, you know, if you work out in the evening and you're having high doses of caffeine, the, the typical estimate for the half-life of caffeine is usually somewhere between five to eight hours. Now, that doesn't mean it's cleared your system in five to eight hours. It means half of it has cleared your system in five to eight hours. So I work with a lot of clients with a variety of fitness goals, whether it's powerlifting, bodybuilding, general fitness, weight loss, and we get sleep issues a lot. And they'll, they'll say, I, I'm, I'm not sleeping and I don't know why. And actually the very first thing I do is do a little audit of how much caffeine is getting consumed and at what time during the day. And kind of the, the, easiest first response whenever their sleep issues would be noon no more caffeine like whatever caffeine you want to get in it's got to be by noon and a lot of times just that one step takes care of a lot of sleep issues uh like right now you you caught me drinking an energy drink and my girlfriend makes fun of me for drinking those but uh so this is the busy time of the month where i know that i'm sabotaging my sleep habits uh, but it is a necessary cost to get everything done that I need to do. Uh, but on the caffeine side, yeah, it's, it, it does help with performance, but you have, to, you have to really balance that with it's a vicious cycle. You are using, in some cases, caffeine to compensate for a lack of sleep, but you might be contributing to poor sleep that night, and then the next day you, again, compensate and contribute and compensate and contribute. So sometimes you have to make a tough decision of, we need to do a little reset here and get your caffeine habits in check in order to fix your sleep habits, which will reduce your need for caffeine. So sometimes it, things just get way out of hand, which is about where I'm at right now. And uh, I have a big deadline in a few days, but once I pass that deadline, I will act like a responsible adult, get my sleep habits back in order and get, get the caffeine back, back in check. So speak a, a little bit, because you know, to be honest with you, I think it's I think you could probably do it in three sentences. You know, um, when I went to powerlifting, um, it really didn't make I mean. So so speaking of the culture, um, so nose torque um, is something that obviously you're familiar with. Basically, what we're talking about is smelling salts. So a lot of the times for a maximum lift, you're going to have nose torque. Um, to kind of stimulate your, you know, fight or flight, whatever, and uh, in theory lift more. And it's not just a theory, it works. Um, and, uh, or at least, well, I might have that wrong. You, you may know some information that I don't know, but, but I know that um, 
for virtually everyone that I know, we all believe that it, it works. Um, so speak a little bit maybe about that if you have some contrarian point of view. And then the, the second part is most bodybuilders do some level of strength cycling and hypertrophy cycling. So whether rather than kind of get in the weeds with that, because we have some other cool stuff to talk about, can you give maybe like the short version? Yeah, so you might be surprised to hear this, but I've actually never used um, any kind of like smelling salts or nose torque or ammonia kind of based uh, stimulant for, for lifting. Um, I believe there was a study on it within the last few years. I'm inclined to say that I believe they didn't find a very notable performance improvement, um, but I don't want to hold myself to that because I my memory's not as good as it should be. So I think there is some peer-reviewed research on it, but I, I I think it found a pretty underwhelming result, but I'm not certain, so I don't want to. It's still not going to stop anybody from using. Well, the one thing I wanted to mention with that is, if you believe it works. It probably will. Um, so like, you know, I, I did my PhD at UNC Chapel Hill. I've been a scientist for a while. Um, and the one thing that I always find funny is that scientists say, well, if the placebo effect is present, then it's a confounding factor. The thing didn't work. But as a coach and a practitioner, I will take any placebo effect I can get. If you're lifting more than you would have otherwise, or you're training more effectively, or, you know, placebo effects are effects in the real world, and we'll take them. So, yeah, if, if you're a lifter and you, you like the ammonia or, you, or, you know, the smelling salts or whatever, and you're using it uh, in a safe manner, and it's you believe it's helping you perform, who am I to say that you should stop? The only time I've ever been close to using any type of product like that I was working on an MRI study and I was going by, you know, MRIs, three dimensional imaging, but your computer screens only two. And so what you have is you have to go through the slices of this MRI image one by one by one and do the analysis. And I was in the hospital setting and I saw that there were some, some smelling salts taped on the wall for an emergency. And I was like, I think I'm tired enough. I just might try it. But I, I decided not to because I probably would have gotten in trouble for that. But I've actually never used them for lifting. Um, so I, I, I still have quite a bit to learn in that area. Usually for the powerlifting, like the really nitty gritty powerlifting stuff, I, I tell Greg to handle it. I'm, I'm the bodybuilder. So if you need fake tan advice, I, I can help out with that. Um, not currently, as you can tell. But um, the other part of the question was, oh, strength and hypertrophy and kind of where those fit in with powerlifting. Now, this is an interesting uh, topic because it's an area of some very lively debate right now in the academic circles. So intuitively, for the longest time, we always were pretty much on board with the idea that muscle size and muscle strength are related and that a larger muscle has a greater capacity to express strength. Um, there have been a few papers um, that are largely, they're, they're kind of editorials almost in many cases of just like, here, here's me kind of going through some evidence and putting it together with a narrative. 
Um, and, and they've called into question how strong the relationship is between muscle size and muscle strength. Um, I don't want to construct a straw man argument, um, but in some cases I have seen people kind of overinterpret those arguments to suggest that there is no relationship between muscle size and strength. I find that to, to be completely implausible. It defies everything I understand about the world around me, and I reject it <laughs> wholeheartedly. Um, because because when, when you say that, when, when you tell me that there is no relationship, so Paul, let's say you and I, we go to IPF Worlds, top raw powerlifting championship in the world, okay? So we show up, and there's weight classes in powerlifting, and all these people are well-trained, if I were to say, Paul, $200,000 bet, do you, who's going to squat more, the lightest weight class or the heaviest weight class? If you're saying there's no relationship, you view that as a coin flip bet, essentially. And that's ridiculous. It, it's completely implausible. However, there, there are some good points being raised in the sense that the size of a muscle doesn't tell the whole story. When it comes to strength, there are several other factors that contribute to your strength that have nothing to do with muscle size. Um, and, and the factors are, <laughs> frankly, there are too many to, to list in a concise way. But but the argument that there is more to strength than just muscle size is absolutely true. Uh, the idea that there is no relationship between muscle size and muscle strength is is not, in my opinion. Well, so you went a different direction, which was awesome, right? And that was a lot yeah. of information. Um, I, w I would kind of push back a little bit, and and we tend to not go super sciency on these, but but when you look at the size of the individual, it doesn't always matter the muscle size of the individual, right? Yeah. So as you know, there's a lot of people within powerlifting that are just big, monstrous people. Mm -hmm. And um, there are people that I know that are, you know, natural in that instance, and they just, you know, they carry heavy body fats and they squat just an eight ton of weight, right? Mm -hmm. And so what I was kind of getting to, though, was the fact that I, on a body test, lost muscle as I moved to powerlifting, right? Mm -hmm. And then when you think about it, you know, so in theory, I gained a lot of muscle while doing CrossFit, which, you know, you and I know is sort of new beginnings, right? And then I moved to powerlifting, you know, deadlift goes from mid 300s to 500, and you're like strolling into the University of Minnesota, you're like, baby, here comes 10 pounds more muscle, and it's, it's three pounds less, and you're like, what the hell did I do all that for? You know what's funny is that actually now that we're talking about this, this is a big topic that I talk about a lot. Mm -hmm. It's like, why did you do that, right? And the reality is in my head, I was like, I want to live 500 pounds deadlift. But that was not what I really wanted. What I really wanted was more muscle. What I really yeah. wanted was a better aesthetic. And what I think happens is a lot of people do this, and I don't want to get too derailed because we're already getting derailed left and right, but people want the side effect 
right? It's like they watch the commercial and it'll make you blind and you'll become impotent and you might die and suicidal thoughts, but possible weight loss and people are like, sign me up, right? And yeah. I think that happens in fitness a lot, right? When you're, you're looking at yoga or orange theory or whatever, when we talk about exercise, the goal of exercise is to get better at exercise. So I did amazing as it relates to, and, it, and actually it's sort of, I'm a great example of what you just said that sort of disputes your your mind view. I'm not a muscular guy. I'm not like, you know, stacked with muscle, but it was really more about training my central nervous system. You could easily make the argument, but you were kind of new to training and, you know, you were within five years of ever picking up a barbell and you'd be absolutely correct in stating that. But at the same time, the um, I, I think that a lot of people go into something like powerlifting. I mean, I'm thinking of this really this influencer. I don't want to, like, call her out or anything like that. But, you know, she was really got got all these followers and powerlifting and and. And everybody was like, you know, you go, girl, you're getting strong and, and things of this nature. And she really didn't want to get strong. Right. She wanted abs. She wanted to to look ripped. But she liked the powerlifting path more than she did the bi bodybuilding and dieting path. So she started down that way. And nowadays she's more in the dieting bodybuilding path. And I yeah. think that's a natural transition so why don't you speak to that a little bit because you're kind of throwing out that you're powerlifting and then sometimes you're bodybuilding and so just talk about that in regards to muscle building and, and aesthetic yeah so without question i'm a bodybuilder first i have done powerlifting i try to incorporate those lifts into my training um mostly for fun but you bring up a good point that it's important to train for exactly what you want um, and so, you know, the, the idea that someone could increase their deadlift without putting on a bunch of muscle, um, totally makes sense based on what we know about training. You know, if, if you train for that deadlift, you're going to, uh, increase the skill with which you deadlift your neuromuscular efficiency in that movement. Um, and none of those things necessarily, uh, suggest that you're going to increase muscle along the way. So if, if the goal was strictly the aesthetic to be more muscular, you know, you, you're probably not best served by doing sets of three on the deadlift. You know, there are other exercises to build your back musculature, your leg musculature. There are probably more efficient repetition ranges that you could spend most of your training in. So the, the training for strength and the training, the training for pure strength and purely for hypertrophy often tend to be a little bit different. So it is important that people uh, on the outset of a program are honest with themselves about exactly what they want from the program um, rather than I'm going to chase this thing and hope some residual things happen along the way. Now, there are reasons, very uh, understandable reasons, why somebody would train in a way that is not directly related to the exact adaptations they want. Um, part of it might be because might be because it's been kind of glamorized. So they kind of follow the powerlifting world on Instagram or whatever and say, I want to train like that and hope I get muscular along the way. Another would be if in your local training environment, the people you enjoy training with 
happen to do powerlifting. And you say, oh, this will be a good way for me to enjoy my training, have fun, build camaraderie, and hopefully I get muscular as well. But um, but no, to get back to your point, the straining or the strength versus hypertrophy, if you were trying to truly optimize one versus the other, those programs would look different. And one of the reasons that people, you know, you mentioned going back and forth a little bit. One of the reasons that people who are powerlifting focused do incorporate some more hypertrophy focused blocks of training is to get back to that idea that, you know, yeah, you primarily drive strength gains by very specific types of training, but if you can enhance your overall muscularity and then go back to those training tactics, you probably have a higher ceiling for total strength. Yeah, I think what you said was really interesting because it's it speaks to CrossFit, right? So I, mm. I CrossFit, just got back from CrossFit. Um, but I understand the mechanisms of how CrossFit works. And if I wanted eight pack abs, CrossFit is not the most optimal way to get. And then you go, oh, that's ridiculous. I turn on the television and all the CrossFit games athletes have eight pack abs. They also work out three times a day. They also may have their nutrition on point, things of that nature. Um, so I'll get to the end of the story. So the end of the story was I did what you said, right? Is I didn't want to do bodybuilding because it's so fucking boring, right? And I just manned up and I went through about about a two year period where I bodybuild, did bodybuilding, and now I do kind of an incorporation. Most of my CrossFit is similar to what you said because I like that community. My powerlifting community, we're we're still cool. Um but, you know, but there's various powerlifting communities, you know, the powerlifting community that I was working out with, a lot of them are on gear, um, not 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 steroids, um, the the short for steroids, but but they actually use like the suits and stuff like that. Equipped, yeah. And, and they're equipped. There we go. And um, the uh, it just is not my cup of tea. Now, I will say it was always intriguing. Um, because I'm not a gifted squatter, and so it, it would be really interesting to try that piece of things. But I did put on about 20 pounds of muscle um, because when I went and lost 100 pounds, I, you know, at the end of it, it's like, yeah, I have abs, but I look like a 13-year-old, right? And, and I just had kind of this washed-out look. I was a little stressed out, you know, from the energy drinks and the caffeine and all, all the things that we've been talking about. Um, and, and it's one of the things that I think happens with highly focused people as it relates to goals. Sometimes that can kind of work against you, right? And it definitely did for me, you know, because I was like, I just need to be more gangster. And, you know, it got me to where I wanted to go. But I would say that the information that I've learned since then, the experiments that I've done with myself, the thing that people hate the most about guys like you and me is, well, it depends. <laughs> they hate that, right? Yeah. Because it's so much easier to say to people, here's this simplistic thing. And when you do this simplistic thing, you will have APAC apps. Right. So I wanted to kind of go back because we were talking a little bit about um, some things that, that you talked about. 
So sleep was a big problem for me for a very long time. I used to play professional poker. And so that data is what got me into going, okay, I'm obese. If I can beat that guy for a million dollars, right, I should be able to um, analyze the data and figure myself out, right? I'm just too smart to not pay attention to how my body works. And so that's really kind of been the approach of each form all along, right? Is that if we can get enough data on you, we can help you put the pieces together. And so from that process, you know, I mean, when I was playing poker, um, I was going to stay awake until you're broke, right? And and that is how that worked. And so I would sleep for 20 hours at a time after staying awake for 48 hours, right? And so it just had this bad, and it was kind of interesting because, you know, we talk a lot about homeostasis within science, and there was a little bit of a discussion on sleep homeostasis, and when I started to hear about that, I was like, wow, that is really interesting, that that the habits that you're creating almost immediately create a balance that you have to figure out, right? And um, so I don't, I've recommended his book, I'll recommend it again, it, Matthew Walker, right? Um, Why We Sleep. And I love it. I think he's speaking to sleep in a way, and he has to be unconditional. And, and I get why he has to be unconditional in what he's talking about, because what he's saying is, is that eight hours sleep is non-negotiable, right? That we know historical data, this is what works. And so from that perspective, you know, it was interesting because, you know, my nature, you know, being in the fitness business and things of this nature, right around the time I was starting to bodybuild, you know, it, it worked in my advantage to be a little bit heavier to build muscle. Um, and then also I was working on my sleep at that time. And so people are like, dude, you know, you're not as lean as you used to be, bro. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, it's okay. I kind of know how to do this, right? Um, and it was always interesting to, to hear people's feedback, but I would say to them, I was like, I'm working on my sleep right now, and that is a much bigger health priority for me, right? And so when I read Matthew's book, which is going on maybe two years ago at this point, um, I started to nap. And so I stopped drinking caffeine at nine, something that I still do to this day. I don't nap every single day, um, but I do nap usually four to five days a week. Um, I wish I could nap seven days a week. Um, there is a wellness room at the work share place. It's really where the breastfeeding moms go. Um, but I am looking for a way to kind of nap in there um, because I, I feel better as a human being with a little 15 minute nap, right? And so, so that's a long way to kind of go to what I really wanted to talk to you about with sleep and under eating is how often do you bring up the fact that under eating causes, is a stressful condition to your body and can negatively affect sleep? 
What are your thoughts on that? Do you think that's overblown? Is that too simplistic? Give me some some ideas. Well, it's there are certainly circumstances in which that is very true. And so whenever I talk about some of the effects of weight loss or under eating, I tend to take it to the extreme. So as a natural bodybuilder myself, I have pushed my body composition as far as it will go um, to the point that I was still working on my PhD the last time I competed. And several people in the department were asking my friends if I was seriously ill because I had gotten lean and I looked like I looked like. Am I allowed to swear? I looked bad. Yeah. <laughs> I, I always have to remember, like, this isn't your show, Eric. You, you got to be, you know, you got to respect the boundaries. But we always have the E just in case. <laughs> but in any case, uh, I didn't look good. I was very, very lean, like crazy. And what happens is during contest prep, when you talk to bodybuilders who are very much under eating and very lean, sleep is so hard to come by. So for my last contest prep, if I could get four hours straight in a night, I would be thrilled. And usually what would happen is I would sleep for three, three and a half, maybe four hours. I would wake up. It'd probably be about two or three in the morning. And I'd be like, well, I guess I'm going to go to work because what I mean, you can't get back to sleep. So when you push it really far, those effects become very apparent. You know, most of my friends that do bodybuilding competitions if they do, if they get lean enough to do well, none of them really can consistently sleep more than like six hours a night. Uh, so it, it becomes very problematic. And then certainly, even if you're not that lean, um, if you're on a restrictive enough diet that you are, you can tell that you are hungry at the time of going to bed, it's really hard to sleep when you're hungry. Um, like trying to get to sleep with hunger present very, very difficult to do. So even if you're not pushing it all the way to the extreme, absolutely, I've seen many instances in which under eating uh, can can fuel sleep issues. Um, and sleep is one of those things that even on the other side of, of the coin, I've seen a lot of instances in which because people are under sleeping, because they're not prioritizing their, their sleep habits, uh, lack of sleep often contributes to not just increased stress, um, following sleep restriction, but also increased food intake, uh, increased cravings, and it even seems to influence the types of foods that you gravitate toward. So I've seen both both sides of the coin where dieting affects sleep poorly, and I've seen where bad sleep habits affect the diet poorly. Well, and isn't it just kind of logical, right? I mean, like people always wonder why, and I see this a lot, you know, and I don't even want to mention this because I definitely don't want to go down this rabbit hole. But, you know, when you have people that are new to fitness or new to, to, to eating less or whatever, um, their approaches tend to be less informed and they tend to gravitate to the most amount of suffering possible as quickly as possible. So then they could eat normal, which, you know, we all know, like, if you're going to do this right, you really have to have kind of this building blocks approach where, you know, like I said earlier, it depends, you know, and it always depends. But I love, love, love what you said. I, it didn't even occur to me as a natural bodybuilder that I could ask you about sleep because this is something that I think is so important to me that, 
you know, if you are a dieter, if you've been dieting since you were five years old and every single time you have to go lower and lower and lower and lower, not only are you, you know, going to be affecting your brain chemistry, right? That is a known fact that is really not brought out there very much. Um, it was interesting because we were, um, this was, I was at it. So I'll, I'll tell you how I met Greg. So I met Greg, I was at a thing for the juggernaut um, and we were doing panels and stuff like this. This was five, six years ago at this time. And um, it was sort of funny because I remember Mike Isratel from Renaissance Periodization and um, Alex Vieta, you know, kind of talking about their social media presence and they're like, yeah, you know, you, you guys, you know, he just wouldn't know what it's like. And I'm like, Dude, I've got 1.3 million followers on Facebook. I, I'm pretty sure I have some idea. But it, it is different. The people that you're talking to, that Mike's talking to, that Alex is talking to, than I'm talking to. And so um, I, just, I just love the fact that, you know, I've had other people on here that are pretty open about the fact that they're not um natural and they sleep fine and this is another one of the things and, and i'm very open about this i'll stick a needle in my ass no problem right so there you go we can curse um if i knew that the health thing would be fine i'm more interested in human growth hormone than i am probably testosterone um you know we'll see after this most recent cut. Um, but I feel like just me personally, I'm talking for me. I feel like me doing something that would help does not give me the perspective that sleeping three to four hours when you're at your lowest bodybuilding. I have a friend of mine who's a natural bodybuilder. And he said something that, that rings in my ears to this day. He's like, I look amazing at 210. And then I cut for a show and I'm 189. And it looks like I never lifted a, day, a weight in my life. You know? Yeah. And I don't think that people realize, and I think that a lot of people do gravitate towards PEDs, even though there's really no incentive right? The, the very few people are going to really make it. It's like CrossFit. It's like a lot of these things where very few people benefit from things a lot. But that was really interesting. Um, one of the things that really interests me, because I'm a big fan of, of boxing, um, and it's something that a lot of people do not consider, and I think this happens a lot more in MMA than boxing, um, is if you look at somebody like Floyd Mayweather, and whether you like him or not, he's undeniably great. If you've ever been next to Floyd, he's small, right? He is a naturally small guy, right? And so naturally, he is able to fight at these weights. You know, he fought very comfortably at 140, had to really work hard to get to 147. Meanwhile, everyone else in his boxing class, right, they go up to 160, 165, and cut down to 147. And I remember, I can't, I never remember his name, and I brought him up a few times, but 
His nickname is Chocolatito. And he was pound for pound considered to be the best boxer in the world. And when the wheels fell off for this dude, everybody knocked his ass out. And this happens in MMA. I would argue this is what happened to Ronda Rousey. I would argue this happens to a lot of the people that are longer in their career. What ends up happening when you're fighting on these really short schedules, one, if you're tested, right, you can't rely on, you know, anything to help you sleep other than sleep aids that are natural that, that you know, they're going to get through the urine test. And so what ends up happening is these people end up sleeping and therefore their workouts are worse. They become worse at their skill. And that's why at 28 to 32, they deteriorate. And then the 23-year-old who's got testosterone coming out of their eyeballs ends up knocking them out, right? Meanwhile, Floyd, who's just eating like a normal little last dude does, he's eating 5,000 calories a day. He's not drawing off of his testosterone reserves. His workouts are amazing. You can go to YouTube and watch them, right? His workouts are a lot better than the guys that have to starve themselves to stay at 147, right? And so I don't know if you have an opinion on that, but it's going to be a good transition to our next topic. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I can't speak to the role of sleep uh, specifically as it pertains to those fighters, but I can tell you on, on the topic of weight cutting, uh, my first position as a strength coach was working with high school wrestlers. And uh, on one side in high school wrestling, there's a big push to get weight cutting out of the sport uh, from a, just from an ethics perspective and a safety perspective. But I genuinely felt from a performance perspective that our, our athletes should not be cutting weight the way that a lot of athletes were uh, at that time. And the reason being, when, when you're cutting a lot of weight as an athlete, and I was a high school wrestler myself, so I, I kind of grown up in, in a similar type of culture. When you're cutting weight as an athlete, whether it's for wrestling, boxing, MMA, you start to view your workout subconsciously as the workouts are a mechanism to control body weight. They are not uh, a bout of a few hours where you are refining your skill set. And the second that you start viewing your training as a weight control mechanism rather than a skill refinement mechanism, I think you risk uh, big time drops in performance, big time. Uh, and that's that's aside from the physiology of being chronically underfed during training. So I think for many, many reasons. Yeah. Can I just truncate that down? a little bit for you because this is something that we talk about a lot. You exercise to get better at exercise. This is the thing that pisses me off about trainers to no end. If you're not honest to the people that you're training, they're going to jump from program to program to program because you haven't told them the truth, right? And so if you're not saying to them, I mean, it sounds weird, but if you're at Orange Theory, you're trying to get better at Orange Theory, right? And so if that's yeah. your goal to get better at Orange Theory, then great, right? Now, can that have a positive effect on your health? Yes. Once again, whole different discussion, right? But I think that what you said, I just wanted to truncate it down to you exercise 
to get better at exercise. And I can't fucking believe that two nutrition guys have to say that. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that drives me crazy. By the way, um, Joe Rogan, which we're not going to go down that ro- rabbit hole. Um, he's an advocate for what you just said for MMA. Um, and he thinks that the, the careers, you know, this is why you see these guys that were just these great champions still fighting because they need the money that are just getting crushed. And his argument is that if there wasn't this big push for weight cuts all the time, that everyone would be able to train at maximum efficiency. So the last thing I wanted to talk about, and I'm really, really, really want to push for you and Greg to help me on this one. Okay. And I'm, you know, more than willing to come on your podcast to make the position or, you know, even for five minutes to just make the case here is when we look at, you know, the concept of cheat meals, right? Um, you cheat on your wife, you cheat on your taxes. All of those things have drastic consequences. You're saying right? you more generally. You're not talking to me, right? I'm not saying that you cheat on your wife, yeah. you cheat on your taxes. Okay. Um, I, I don't know you, Eric. You <laughs> might do those things. Absolutely I mean, not. I have to say with your voice, you know, it could be kind of intoxicating. And you were talking a little bit earlier about, you know, just the, you know, the intensity of your workouts and stuff like that. So it would not surprise me um, if you go down those routes. But what I'm saying is, is that I think there is this culture of less. And it's, it's really difficult because, you know, I've seen people in 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 our position, right, that really do not make a case. You know, originally what we were going to talk about, we're, we're just going to blow away. But when Eric and I initially started the conversation, one of the ideas that we had was, hey, how come bodybuilders don't bodybuild anymore? Right. And what you what I was basically saying is, is that no one is really working to build mass. And I remember, actually, this is funny that that I'm saying it now. Because when I was talking to Mike and Alex, and it was sort of funny because Mike recently cut, um, and he did what I said I was going to do. And I told Mike and Alex at that conference, I said, you know, for like the next five or six years, you know, I'm just not cutting. You know, there's just other things, sleep, you know, bodybuilding, things of this nature that I want to work on that and and you know they all gave me the fist pump and things of this nature and then of course like six months later you know i'm tempted to cut just like everybody else because you know you're it's tough to stick to the plan and oh by the way you didn't get into this to accumulate fat and it's hard to not accumulate fat when you're not eating you know to build muscle but i think that this idea and I mean, just the rock. I mean, like the wall that we would have to go over to get people to go away from this concept of, of cheat meals. I just feel like it's so bad psychologically because what it's saying is, is that one meal out of the week is the thing that you live for. And oftentimes we know in a cutting cycle 
And you actually said, and I'm going to give you a chance to explain how you do it because I think it's really interesting, um, that you don't prescribe cheat meals and you don't prescribe that people would look at it this way. And I suspect I know the way that you do prescribe it, but we call that super days, right? And I saw this meme recently that was kind of interesting. It's kind of interesting that people get their nutrition information from memes, but this was a good one, right? It was like, um, why cheat meals are bad for you, right? And so, and and it kind of goosed the situation a little bit and, and, and they were dieting 1,500 and then they had like 3,500 calories on Saturday and Sunday, right? And, and when you looked at the calorie average, you know, you see why you're ultimately over-consuming over or staying the same weight. We, ever since the history of, of Eat the Reform, there was two things that, one thing I had to cave on, this one I have not. Um, I did not believe in before and afters. <laughs> I know it's going to sound like the most crazy thing ever. I had to cave on it because otherwise it's going to get, it's hard to get clients if you can't show that, but I did not believe in it. Just, still to this day, there's a lot of people that, I mean, who really wants to show that before picture? Hey, this is my before when I was a total idiot, right? And this is me with abs, you know? Uh, I, one thing that we definitely do a lot more now, and we do this in, in a way that I think a lot of people don't, people really don't give a shit about the before, right? The after's fine. Right. You show somebody with like eight pack abs, you know, that after is good, you know. But um, I think the concept of, of eating flexibly within your week has value. I, I often tell people, I said, when you look at your super day, what I want you to do is to view the rest of the week or, you know, like naturally my lowest day um typically ends on on mondays for me which is kind of three days after my super day right the day that i eat flexibly and usually it's because you know if i'm in a cut um i don't yeah even as I'm saying this, it makes me think of other things that could go the real, but, but long, long story short, if I'm looking for a half pound a, a week or a pound a week, people don't realize how much they actually control that. Right. I know for yeah. women, it's a little different and we can go into that, but talk to me a little bit about this cheat because, because I don't think it comes up a lot and I think it fucks up a lot of people, man, you know, and, and they end up obsessing about food wrongly. And oh, by the way, if you're sleeping four hours a night because your cuts are really deep and you have that cheat day, that's what ends up happening. That's the day you sleep well. You're getting signals of what's the right thing to do all along, right? Yesterday was my super day. Yesterday just happened to go inside that I slept eight and a half hours really easily. Now my cuts are not deep like your cuts, you know. So so I'm still seeing good sleep. But let's be real, when you're getting eight and a half compared to seven, 
there's a big performance difference. So talk to me a little bit about it. You know, if you if you don't have this really strong opinion, I'm hoping I'm making a convincing argument, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I work with a lot of different kinds of clients who have very different kinds of goals. And if I'm working with somebody who, let's say they're competitive, and we're talking like bodybuilding, physique, bikini, you know, we're going to get on stage and people are going to give us points based yeah, yeah. on our body fat. And, yeah, I mean, so in people, people that are in that situation, I don't do anything resembling a cheat day or a cheat meal. We might have strategic periods in which calories are increased, um, but it's done in a very controlled manner. Um, because at that point, honestly, when people who are wired that way that are in, and I'm speaking about in contest preparation, not the off season, but people who are wired that way, I promise you they're going to be more stressed by the unknown of an untracked cheat day uh, than the, the fact that they're on their diet. So for them, it actually backfires psychologically. If someone who's completely rigid in the way that they're like they are tunnel vision on this competition. If you say, go eat a ton of food and don't track it, that is going to freak them out. Another reason I don't like it, uh, even for more general population, is because I think it reinforces this idea that the, the current diet they're on on a normal day is so unpalatable and so unsustainable that we must have a reprieve. There has to be some kind of escape from this, mm -hmm. which is your cheat day. So I don't even really, th there's not a single type of population in which I would ever use that terminology because I, like you're getting at, it, it invokes a lot of negative thoughts and negative perspectives. Uh, but even in times where I want to manipulate uh, caloric intake, I, I still like to do it in a very uh, method, a lot kind of methodical way. Now, there are times where it makes sense for somebody for, you know, some circumstance. There are times where, where you're going to just not track what you're eating, and that's okay. And, mm -hmm. and it's not just okay. It's useful in some circumstances. When people are just at their limit and they just need a break, you can do that. Um, but I think it's important, you know, the terminology you use, how you frame it. Uh, you can give more flexible guidelines that that make it such that they still get the psychological benefit of not having ri really rigid tracking going on. But you could say, so here's what eating should look like this week. And you start to take a more qualitative approach and say every meal should have a decent, you know, vegetable in it. Every meal should have 20 grams of protein. You should eat this many meals. You can start to put together a a, a more qualitative description of what eating should look like that has a little bit less of a numbers driven. I know I just mentioned some numbers, but whatever. But you, you know what I mean? You can really take it back in terms of exactly how much willpower and restraint is required, make it a lot more flexible, a lot more open ended. But it's kind of like um, this might be a bad analogy, but imagine like you have a kid and your kid's going to go out for dinner with their friends or whatever, you know, a young kid, you know, teenager or whatever, they don't have an income. You say, here, you know what, tonight have dinner on the credit card, whatever. You you still understand, like when I'm coaching, I understand if I tell somebody like, hey, let's have a day or a week or something where we have these relaxed kind of restrictions or relaxed uh, guidelines. I still understand the general range that they're going to be in. 
like it's it's a it's a a wager I'm willing to make because I understand exactly the the range in which the damage we could do by taking this approach. It's like when you give that kid the credit card and say, yeah, go go have dinner with your friends. You know, it's not going to be a thirty thousand dollar dinner. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's you're like, OK, I have an idea of what I'm spending here and it's, it's fine. Whatever is within. Yeah, just yeah. like whatever's within that range, I know I've budgeted that and we're going to be fine. So if I ever give those like really relaxed guidelines to a client, I'm basically that parent who's saying, here's the credit card, go have dinner. I know what shopping area you're going to. It's going to be somewhere between like 10 or 30 bucks. It's all budgeted in. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there, there are times where you make those budgeted decisions. Well, and that's why, you know, we budget them in. Um, as as a program, um, my issue is not the flexibility. I don't I don't have a problem with the flexibility. It is interesting to me. It's just the terminology, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I think that you know, if you don't know that you're playing with people's brain chemistry, you need to know that, right? Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, the psychological piece that you're talking about, I think, is really important, and, it, and words matter, right? And so to me, this is something I feel really super strongly about it. And I believe that food is an ally. I actually think that you're speaking with uh, one of the gals we're real close to, Susan Kleiner, right? And Susan, you know, is really big into performance, you know, major athletes, things of that nature. But the food as an ally concept, you know, on Instagram, not a thing, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. there, there's kind of the, the eight is interesting because we're, we're talking about the clients that we work with. I have a gal that, uh, you know, is a strong shot at, at going to Tokyo for USA weightlifting. Right. Um, and it was always interesting to look at her Instagram compared to the cheat day people. Right. Is she never had that stuff right mm -hmm. she never had like these crazy days where you know this is the day i get to eat donuts and then the rest of the life my life i do not you know it's like well i think that that's why a lot of athletes once they're done athleting right end up being overweight is because they really wanted to eat donuts the whole time right and it's like I just don't know that you're establishing a lot of a lot of great habits that way. And I agree with you that it should be really sustainable. And these are topics that honestly we could go on forever because I think that the movement for intermittent fasting and ketogenic dieting and all these things, a lot of it, especially when cheat meals are considered, you know, you absolutely cannot eat for seven days and not lose weight based on the habits that you have in the periods where you're not eating. And I think both you and I probably agree that those are extremes that a lot of regular people that are uninformed for the most part, right? It's so interesting to me and we'll end on this note and, and I'll, you know, give all your podcasts and credentials and stuff like that. Um, but it's interesting to me that um, the reasonable people never get to win, right? 
And so like a great example would be a keto gains people. I think they do a really good job of, hey, look, this is a cyclical approach, right? Um, you want to have macros, things of this nature, intermittent fasting. But no, no, those guys don't get to win. It's the most gangster, most crazy, you know, I, I didn't even know the concept. One of the one of the blogs that um, is out there, I'm not going to mention who they are because I'm not going to give them any play, but they're in the work share environment that I have my office. And their thing is Dirty Keto, which, you know, is basically just low carb and apparently drink a lot, right? Um, I I always thought that that alcohol had carbs in it, um, but apparently not, right? Um, and and that's just the thing. But I think that I think that what's happening is is people are setting up this really simplistic approach that is not specific at all to have this bad lifestyle, right? And the thing that I learned for me. Right. And I think that we try to put out there with each form, and I suspect that you do as well with the people that you work with, though you the people that you work with are are looking for a very specific goal. It's always interesting to me to talk to someone, especially natural bodybuilding. You're the most dieting gangster, right? But most of all, because because even boxers don't go as low as you guys will go. Right. right. Um, I mean, the, the best thing I've ever heard about bodybuilding is it's literally the hardest thing to do on the planet because you're not conditioned to not eat as a human being. Right. You're supposed to be eating as a human being. But I think that the, it's the it's the nonspecific approach out there that's harming a lot of people. And the. The more information they get. It's like, well, so confusing because the snake guy, diet guy told me just to not eat as long as I could possibly eat and just drink salt water and I'll be fine. You know, I was actually accidentally put into that group and I'm, I left like immediately. I did stay for like a day just to kind of see what the shit show was about. But honestly, I left the group because I was like, I feel like an accessory to a crime here. <laughs> like, it was that bad, man. I mean, it yeah. was amazing, just kind of the difference um, that we're talking about. So, hey, you can, can I add a quick caveat here? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. So, you bring up a good point talking about these different diet approaches. In my answer, talking about cheat meals, I mentioned times where things get more flexible. But even in my most rigid phases with my most rigid clients, flexibility is still a key component of how how I work with with people. So even when even when I have when I'm working with a you know physique athlete or doing my own physique athlete diet when I'm prepping, even in the most restrictive phases, bar none, I can eat whatever I want as long as it's within my macro target. So I, I don't want to give the impression that I ever push anything that's particularly rigid. But what I mean by saying by using the term getting more flexible, I even say, you know what, we don't even need macro targets 
for the next three days. Let's just forget the macro targets and just keep it really basic. So I just wanted to make sure I was clear about that because those words have so many different meanings to different people. That's a great clarification because I I think that that is important for people to understand. Um, Obviously, nutrient density is a priority the majority of the time, but when it gets to a place where mentally it's having a drain on you, I think what Eric's saying for his approach um, is very similar to obviously our approach. I mean, you know, in a way we're in two different universes, right? Because while the people that I work with um, are looking to have physique changes and aesthetic changes and things of this nature, like spleen striations is not their goal, right? And so, so for you, spleen striations is a little bit more of a priority. And so I totally get that. Like the people listening to what you said about three to four hours sleep, if you're a lawyer, right? Bad idea, real bad idea, three to four hours sleep if you got a big case the next day because you might lose that case. And yeah. I think that if people understood that, they'd be in a much better position. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, so talk to us a little bit about the podcast. Talk to us a little bit about where people can find you and, and if spleen striations become important to them at some point, where can they find out about that? Yeah, so um, I'm the director of education for Stronger by Science. We have a podcast called the Stronger by Science podcast. Uh, we're very sarcastic. We joke around a lot. We know that we don't have the first fitness podcast. People have been very, <laughs> some people have thought, <laughs> some people have thought we were serious and gotten so upset with us. Um, I, I, I once claimed to be the Bo Jackson of bodybuilding because I technically have two pro cards and people are like, he's such a jerk. And I'm like, dude, I, I know I suck at bodybuilding. We're just kidding, you know, but in any case, um, so the, the podcast, we joke around a lot, but we do have a lot of really, um, really good evidence-based kind of scientific information pertaining to both training and nutrition. So uh, we also, I do some coaching and you'd actually be surprised. Most of my clients uh, are general population. They're not bodybuilders or powerlifters or physique athletes. They're just people who want to get in shape. But uh, we have a whole team of coaches at Stronger by Science that I'm kind of in charge of. Uh, so you can find them on our website. And if you want to stay in touch with me, uh, I'm active on Facebook and mostly on Instagram. And my handle is at Trexler Fitness. So you can either find me there on Instagram or at StrongerByScience.com. Gotcha. Yeah. So, Greg, one of the things that I think is really smart about Greg is that he makes the case for fitness professionals to talk to female audiences right, and be more aware of female audiences because it was represents a, a large part of, you know, just in general, um, the fitness community, people who seek fat loss, right, anybody. You know, it was really interesting because when I started Eat to Perform, um, I had no idea that all these people were going to show up, right, because I was saying something so unique that food is an ally right and that I was losing all this weight while eating all this food but I was working out a lot and I think I think if you had to choose suffering a lot of people would choose working out versus the other but there's kind of this hybrid approach that's better the thing that I I liked about 
Greg when I met him at that conference that I was talking about earlier. Um, I was squatting and Greg was in charge of the squat station. And he's like, you point your feet out. He's like, but you don't start out when you point your feet out. He's like, you move your feet after you get in the position. He's like, why don't you just start with your feet out? And ever since then, I've squatted that way. And that's, a, you know, um, what impressed me, I was possibly the least gangster person in that whole conference, right? This is like juggernaut training and everyone's like testosterone out of their eyeballs and stuff. But like literally, the, the, it was wild. The um, woman deadlifting, she's like nationally ranked power. I, I don't remember her name, but full on peed, right? <laughs> like, like just evacuated her bladder while deadlifting, completed the lift. And I was like, I was like, this is not my arena, right? Yeah. And uh, it was just so funny. I mean, everyone was great to me. Um, it, it was it was amazing. I think that I think that a lot of non-fit people don't understand that about fit people. Yeah, there's some assholes at your gym. We get it, right? Um, mm -hmm. But in terms of fitness professionals, if you find the right crowd you know, they're going to be overly supportive. And Greg was very supportive to me, felt really new. Like, you know, at that time, I think he to perform maybe had only been a year. You know, Greg from Juggernaut had, had was like, dude, what's this dude saying that's so interesting to people? And all I was saying was like, hey, you know, working out matters, you know, um, yeah. keep you as an ally, you know, these kind of positive messages. And uh, I just like Greg from that moment on, and we've been friends and we talk on Facebook and stuff like that. And so um, it's awesome to see what your podcast has done. I, I can't believe you blew the cover that you weren't the <laughs> fitness podcast. I'm very disappointed in that. But uh, it was great chatting with you. And uh, yeah, I really think you brought to the table a lot of things that, you know, my audience needs to hear, right? Is that, you know, you really have to have this building block approach to understand yourself because if you don't, you're going to end up at 55 years old with a fried thyroid and just totally confused at how you're ever going to lose weight, right? And the reality is, is that if you gradually work to be 0.001% every single day, that adds up over time, right? And I think that um, the one argument I would make to you, and this is the argument that I always challenge myself it, with, is we tend to talk to the same people, right? A lot of the people that I might be talking to on a daily basis, you know, they might know who you are, right? A lot of them don't because we tend to market with a broader net. I think more people need to hear from you. And I think you need to get better at marketing. And I think that the whole bodybuilding community needs to get better at marketing. And Gil, who was on with me last week, he said something great. And I think this is something that I would challenge you with. Porsche was going out of business, right? And what they did to come back into business was they created the Boxster and the SUV and, and all these different channels. And now they're a thriving company under Volkswagen. 
I think that the simplistic approach to fitness, we're letting the snake diet guy win. And the reason why the snake dieting guy is winning is because I, we're not good salespeople, right? And I'm, I'm saying that about myself, right? The best thing that I ever did was start talking to my leads. Once I had 1.3 million people, it was a lot easier to sell people on memberships. And I got a little cocky about it, right? Because, you know, once you get like a podcast, 100,000 people listening to it, you know, or whatever your stats are now, which is awesome. The challenge I would say to you is keep it small. Keep talking to people, right? Just, just you know, develop that gen pop thing because they need to hear it, right? And I'll, I'll give you the last word on that. Yeah, just a quick clarification. Um, I think I misspoke earlier and said that we don't have the first ever fitness podcast. We certainly do. What I was suggesting is we are not the first ever podcast and the first ever fitness professionals. Those yeah. would not be true. But we, we are. I just want to clarify the first to put it together. Thank you, Bo Jackson of fitness. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, I think you're right. It's something that, uh, you know, I spent the last six years in the basement of a university laboratory just doing research and had no interaction on social media. Nobody cared about me. Uh, still very few people care about me, probably less than then, to be honest. Um, we, we do collectively need to do a better job of getting out there and avoiding the issue that I noticed. You see it a lot in academia, but it pertains to fitness, the fitness industry as well. And it's the issue of silos. You get into this kind of evidence-based fitness community and you all talk to each other and you agree very enthusiastically, but you never reach outside of it. So absolutely. Um, and if you're listening to this and you disagree with me about everything I said and you want to bring me on your podcast to to make me look stupid, that would work because that's how you talk to people that aren't already in your following. So we do have to do better. We have to make the uh, we have to make the scientific stuff accessible and approachable. We have to reach out to broader audiences and uh, I'll spend the next 40 years doing that and I'll let you know if it worked. Yeah, I think uh, we're in the same place, but I, I'm, I, I want you, like I said, to take the challenge that we're letting the morons win, right? And yes. we have to step up and, and I'm just telling you that when real recognizes real, right? When you're talking to someone, you can say to them, I get that you heard that on the internet, but here's the reality, and let me explain why, right? Mm -hmm. And I think when they're able to talk to us, you know, um, I think, you know, kind of like your academia thing and the silo, I think a lot of times people feel like, um, you know, like Weight Watchers, you're never going to get to talk to Oprah, right? They get to talk to us, right? And 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 I think that that's a, a real big gift. And I think that's something that as long as we all work on and we start to reach out rather than just kind of talk to each other, that's a, that's a great thing. And that's why I had you on the podcast. So I appreciate it. And, and by the way, thank you very much for having me on. Oh, yeah. And I mean, it, for people that don't know, it's Saturday middle of the day i'm absolutely certain he didn't think that uh we don't know each other we don't know each other at all and um 
And so I'm, I'm pretty sure I caught him off guard a few times. And he probably thinks, wow, that'd be nice if he let the guest talk every now and again. But that's <laughs> not the song, man. All right, Eric. Great talking to you, and you have a great weekend. All right. Take care. Please.